0: You only get into it, out the game what you put into it, Shirley.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered.
2: You yeah. regret that at all? Oh,
0: yeah, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that.
3: Hello and welcome to Man Marking, the final episode of series four. And today we're speaking to Mark and Nicola Palios
4: Yeah, uh, I'm Nicola Palios, Vice Chairman of Tramil Rovers Football Club. Uh, and I focus mostly on the sort of corporate um, community and com side of, of things at the club.
5: I'm Mark Palios, I'm the executive chairman of the club. Uh, and I um focus on well all things football and commercial etc and strategic
3: i am joined by the best front two in the football podcasting world it's anthony olsen it's ryan pulford chaps fellas lads lids the boys the gang the guys <laughs> <laughs> how, how are we <laughs> First, terrific terrific yeah we have a good front too i
1: think we've got a bit of everything you think? i think you'd hold it up and flick it on Oh, and I'd just run channels. Is
3: is that is not providing the pace No,
0: mm, doubtful. <laughs>
1: doubtful. <laughs> we do like a heskey Owen sort of combination, minus the ability. Yeah, okay. Better I'd...
3: better hamstrings though?
0: Yeah. Just about.
3: Just just about. Yeah. <laughs> Five one and even Olsen scored. Oh. That's what they'd sing. Um how's our week been, lads? Pretty good, yeah, really good. Up until about three o'clock yesterday. I don't even remember what I've
1: done. Um yesterday was Quiet, stayed in watch match of the day first time in what feels like forever oh, how was match of the day it's alright yeah I enjoyed
3: the Leeds full game Oh did you? yeah yeah leads are mad aren't they okay I it. just
1: love Parker's interviews I've seen them just like so passionate love his little tie clip yeah, yeah it's be nice to be smart, smart and he chiseled as well
3: yeah uh, I think it's been mentioned before but he does look like a corporal in some kind of armed forces
0: yeah, mm-hmm. well, well, I'm happy with that. You're I'd, with I'd that? watch that. i watch that TV show as well if if, if it was on. You know, it'd like, just be called little, Parker. Yeah, and it'd old, be on it? like
1: 2 p.m. Parker on a Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. It would be.
0: Yeah, just see him every week coming in his gunner. After gun his MacGyver. Couch. Yeah, MacGyver. <laughs> 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 um, how's your week, been? Yeah, good. Not bad. It was. Uh, I had a lovely little cake yesterday from that bakery down by. Ours. He did. Oh yeah,
3: I just like to bring this up by the way. So. Last weekend, obviously, last Saturday, we were all around here, weren't we, for the um, for the trammy match, mm-hmm. and I provided muchos dills. Now, for anyone who's not local to the Wirral area, Dills is a bakery who provides excellent homemade pastries and also cakes and brownies and such, very high quality. And uh, for the opening day of the season, I provided many dills for yep. the fellas, thought it was only right to do as they uh, as they, they, they gathered in my homestead. Now, yesterday, Anthony once again. Came to my household it's to called watch me, the football. Call
0: me Anthony, now. You're in trouble. I know.
3: So Edward came <laughs> round to my household, and uh, he comes in with a with a, a box. And and when you see that box, we all know what the Dill's box looks like. Yeah, we do. It was unmistakably a Dill's box. And I said to him, "Ah, oh, Gwed, what have you got in there?" And he was like, "Oh, well, it, it's a." Uh, it's actually just for me and Hannah for later <laughs> yeah and it
0: was brownie so it was brownie points so I
1: couldn't share them true, with you I me they be wasted and then um, I saw him later that day holding them brownies so I know that's true and with a box of mushrooms on top box of mushrooms mushrooms and, thought, and brownies do not go together yeah, no but they did. Mushroom the
0: mushrooms
3: went on my pizza so obviously. oh there you go there you go yeah. um, anyway enough of that nonsense <laughs> um, opening question mm-hmm. yesterday the main man Dominic Calvert-Lewin scored a hat-trick I think all in all, he was about seventeen centimeters out combined yep. for all those goals. I love the first one, improvisation. Improv. Anyway, Dominic Calvaloon's got the hat trick. So what I want to know from you, chaps, is what's your favourite hat trick from the the annals of football history? And Ryan, you're looking keen. You're looking ready to go. Yep. Hit me with your hit me with your hat tricks. Well, I'm not playing by the rules. Um, you you very rarely no, do.
1: And I hate favourites. Hate picking favourites. So I've gone with three. So personal favourite hat trick of hat tricks. Hat trick of hat tricks. I know you're not happy there Ant I might steal some of yours but personal favourite don't listen to Edward go ahead uh, ride out for Tramia in the greatest ever FA Cup comeback against yeah. Southampton yeah international Zlatan's 4 against England I'm counting that as a hat-trick can we do that yeah it's yeah, fine because it was just incredible it's yeah. a haul
3: but there's a hat-trick within it
0: so
1: yeah and
0: okay. it was against you- Ryan Shawcross but yeah we'll, we'll gloss over that
1: <sighs> he did score like an overhead kick about uh, 40 yards out there and the next one also is a four which was Arsher against Liverpool oh, when he did that four oh, celebration that for, no one could it, see it,
3: me it, do. Yeah, I was it say, just, it's, a, it's just an audio a, feature we both put our fingers up well. in a four yeah. motion because that's where he we went four oh, and yeah. he mouthed it but we're saying it but he showed it because it was on camera and we're doing the opposite. Oh, Jesus. It was impressive. Do you know that know? It. was an excellent game, that. Yeah, was. That was like was proper four-all, four yeah. yeah.
0: The aftermath of that game in the, um, in the post-match, oh, sure, I haven't got asked, have you ever done this before? And he goes, eh, no. And then proceeded to say, yeah, I've done it two times before. So, like, make your mind up, Andre, come
3: on. Come on, it's not his first language, have, have some respect. <laughs> mm-hmm. not that he thing. doesn't know what the difference between no and yeses.
1: <laughs> Tell you what, he, his demise was quick, wasn't it?
3: Maybe he just wasn't that good.
1: It's good for Anfield, though.
3: Yeah, but come on.
0: Yeah. Anyway, sorry, Ant. Who's your Who's one? Your, um... <laughs> your pathetic one? <laughs> My pathetic Go. one. Patrick fella. Come on, chief. Um, okay, uh, I-, I actually went for Dennis Beardcamp again. I'm Aww. just going to mention him every week, I think. Um, the three all at Filbert Street. Oh yeah, uh, glory is that in it. Hattrick. Um, shame he didn't win the game. But yeah, that was mine. I think we yeah. asked Matt
3: Piper about that, didn't we? Come on in, bad. And we said we, he was at that game, wasn't he? I don't think he was playing, but I think he was in, in, oh, yeah, in, in the right, youth yeah. team at the time, wasn't he? He was yeah. in his, his Leicester track suit behind the goal, I think he said. Um,
0: He's that last goal that he scored. It's that the one where he
3: kind of takes it down, down, down he turns and then fires it in the far top corner. It's unbelievable. Lovely. It's lovely. It's unbelievable. Goal. <laughs> Um, the hat-trick I went for uh, You'd probably guess it It was Wayne Rooney's Against Fenerbahce mm. See I told you On year. his uh, Manchester United debut I don't I don't think I've ever seen A more impressive hat-trick
0: So in that game He had a, a, a collar ripped Because apparently The rumour was That he couldn't fit his head in it
3: I, I mean <laughs> People who know me Will understand why I, I, you know, I, I empathise with such a scenario um, But yeah loved, I love Yeah, And it was a glorious hat-trick and it was, do you know what it was as well? Had a bit of everything, the latter. Oh, it was, see, I think people forget because of the kind of iteration of Wayne Rooney that we've had later on, you know, he's now got kids, he's he's older, he's got a beard, he's looking a bit more worldly-wise, he's mm. playing deeper in midfield. But when he burst onto the scene, he was absolutely electric, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Like, was. just like we'd never seen anything like it in, 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 in
0: First game, or oh, one of the first games for England where he's doing,
3: keep ups Yeah, it's Macedonia, stadium, isn't it?
1: Stadium of yeah. just like oh come on. Well, his best ever tournament was probably the year after, wasn't it? The Euros when yeah. it was yeah, he was eighteen, uh, teams it two thousand and four? Yeah, Yeah, and he scored that goal against Croatia. Did he get two that day? Yeah, he
3: did. Yeah, yeah he was just. There's one where he goes through one on one, and he slots it in, and he's still like on the edge of the box when he slots it in. Yeah. And you just think you watch it, and you think, you know, people talk about like Mason Greenwood and how good he looks and, and mm. plays like that. You just think. He was just like especially considering he didn't look like a footballer either no just like a hard carrier he was just <laughs> roaming through defences like they weren't there anyway moving on to today's episode very enjoyable very um, um, yeah I mean when we got this interview set up with Mark and Nicola Palios. for those who don't know those who aren't Tramier fans Mark and Nicola Palios are the chairman and chairwoman of Tramier Uh Mark actually used to play for Tramier many many moons ago and they took over the club about, what was it, six years ago now? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and, well, I
1: think it was
3: um, six-year anniversary recently. Yeah. And uh, so we DM'd both of them, actually. Nicola come back to us and said that they would do the interview with us. So that was uh, exceptionally pleasing for us. It was it was a really interesting evening. Um, the obvious question would be then, Ryan, and it's probably uh, quite an easy answer for, for you to give, why did we want to speak to Mark and Nicola Pallios?
1: I suppose it's twofold, really. So with our tram, your heads on, everybody would like to um, ask questions of their owners and they have been very open since they've been at the club with holding Q&As and being quite open on Twitter. But we just wanted to maybe ask some of the questions that you wouldn't normally get to ask. Um, but then from a football point of view, from a podcast point of view, Mark and Nicola are quite open and change within the game and how it can improve. And obviously we've recently had the... A vote on points per game which Mark and Nicola put forward their own plans so I think from that point of view as a general football fan you don't really need to be a Tramia fan to enjoy it so we knew it'd have a bit of everything mm. uh, a bit selfish on a personal level to want to speak to them but then equally they're just great footballing people uh, yeah. with some good ideas and I think Tramia's image the last few years has, has been very positive Correct. off the back of some some years of I don't even know how you describe almost neglect. managed decline, yeah, yeah, the neglect. Um so I think from from a football point of view, with Mark's experience as being a former chief executive of the FA. Uh Nicola's obviously not got a background in football per se, but she has been involved in other sports, rowing, uh things like that. So just good to pick the brains and, and yeah. get the to get the thoughts behind some of the decisions they make as football owners.
3: And obviously, given this podcast is mental health based a lot of the stuff that they discuss are around helping the community particularly in relation to people's mental well-being people's mental health yeah. uh, gambling is a big topic and, and Mark's and Mark and Nicola have spoken about it before Mark's very impassioned about that as a topic so we do explore that with him as well um, and do you want to tell a lot of listeners what this week's theme is my friend
0: yeah so our theme will be uh, it's football club owners custodians culture and community and like you just said before um, they become very, very involved in the community, and it is changing the culture as well. It's changing Massive. the culture of a match day, you know, to begin with, and and just changing that overall feeling of the club. Because, uh, like you said, you know, Samuel used to be this this club that was struggling to get the main, main stand painted, you know, <laughs> and, and, and when it did get painted, everyone was like, oh my god, they painted that. it the
3: wrong shade of blue as well.
0: Yeah, the, <laughs> we'll gloss over that, but yeah, the, that,
3: well, Mark and Nicola quite literally glossed over it. Yeah, so painted it the right shade of blue.
0: They um, it was. <laughs> It's been a you know, Ryan said before, it was like a managed decline really and, and that's through kinda of no fault of, of Trammy and the community itself. It's more through the expense of football and, and we had an owner who had been there and quite actually did pretty well not to, to get us in the positions that some of yeah. these clubs are in right now. So Mark and Nicola came in and, and have changed it dramatically and just changed the overall feeling and um it was really interesting to see how they dealt with being a, an owner of a football club, mm, the pressures, uh, yeah, yeah, and and how they they deal with you know the social media side of it and, and stuff like that because they're easily reachable now, yeah, as well, which has never been the case for probably quite a lot of owners.
3: Particularly um, not for us,
0: yeah, as fans, for us. yeah, massively. Um, I think you know, Don McAnthony's on Twitter, and I think it's, Andy Holt is on it as well. Yeah, Dale it? Vince is on there as well. So it, it it's. It's a bit
1: of a uh, live at uh, Lincolns. Yeah, it's, it's becoming a more popular, isn't it? It's a, bit isn't a it? shift, isn't
0: it? And yeah. it's, it's it does a, it obviously has its you know really good things, but obviously yeah, it there's pitfalls pitfalls as well. So it was really interesting to see what they had to say. It was, um, it was,
3: and obviously we've we've had the uh, unfortunate news about Macclesfield over the last week mm. or so. Um, so following this episode, we will have a little bit of discussion around that as well. Um, but if that's everything we've got, then we're going to go to the. The interview with Mark and
1: Nicola, unless and Ryan, you look like you were... I was just going to say, there are a few moments in the interview where phones go off and grandfather clocks chime. <laughs> um, so just a little prior warning, but we did do
3: this one over Hangout, didn't we? Because it, did. it was middle of lockdown. It, so. it was right in the midst of lockdown, wasn't
0: it? Yeah, I didn't want to go... Could you turn your phone off? <laughs> well, I did ask him to
3: turn the grandfather clock off. Could you imagine
1: that tram you miss out on signing due to a um, podcast telling him to turn the phone off? Yeah.
3: <laughs> Lionel Messi's there like, well, I would sign for you. He didn't text me back, Mark. So, you know what I mean? Anyway, enough from us. We'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Man Mark and, and this is Mark and Nicola Palios. <laughs>
0: And during your first season, it didn't really go as planned on the field. Um, the club fell out with the football league for the first time in 94 years. Just during that time, as a as a fan personally, it was quite hard to be around the club. How hard was it to own that club at that time? Uh, it, it was very
5: difficult, um, partly because I was adjusting to coming and looking at something that you couldn't really influence. And, you know, in in life, you can generally sort of influence things a lot more easily. So we didn't actually take control until the 9th of August, I think it was. And by that time, the die was cast in terms of the squad. I'd actually done some due diligence on the squad with people I knew. And I knew that the squad was, um, was inadequate, to put it that way, without being too damning. Uh, so we, we'd left cash aside in the budget to do stuff in the window um and uh you know we we, we you had to take a view on, on on the manager and the manager was the wrong place at the wrong time for us and i've said that in the past but you know i think Ron's a, a great guy he's a good coach but there's a lot more angles to being the manager of a, of a league club than there is to being an assistant manager and so forth and just being a coach etc so and it was difficult when you when you put that him into the position whereby there's a club that's just gone down it's got a really negative momentum uh, around the places we knew, and we'd we we'd left aside cash to do some work in the window, uh, and we appointed Mickey Adams, which you know with the hindsight people you know harangued him and and said he was a bad a bad man and a bad person and a bad manager, um, but at the time when we recruited him, everybody said it was a great appointment. So,
4: and he actually started very well, didn't
5: he? Yeah, he First he, months. Yeah, he, he sort of clawed our way back out of the bottom floor. Uh, but then you come to the window and one of the things that you see in the window is trying to bring in better quality players it's it's quite difficult if you're nailed to the bottom of the league to attract players in you'll have seen that in subsequent years we've also we've always used the window to good effect for the second half of the season but uh, the argument there is we're in a slightly different position than being in the bottom four of the league and uh, and in a position where potentially you could be going out of the league. So it was a totally different environment to, to that which we had in 2014. 2014-15 yeah, uh, was a horrible season in the sense that there was very little we could do. And the one big thing that I think that we took out of it, and I certainly keep going back to the Plymouth day, was that day when the fans were still behind us. We were going out of the league for the first time in, in, in our history. that hurt me really badly because you know i played for the club um ironically i turned up on the day when we played exeter when we could have gone out of the league in the first time and that was a real you know that was a real no-no because nobody that was the first time anybody could go out of the league being bottom of the league and ironically i could have been playing for exeter because i turned down a two-year contract with exeter and equally johnny king was trying to find me because he was out of players and he was trying to drag me back out of retirement so it was just one of those days And, and that having being through that we travelled all the way up to watch that game. To be sitting there in charge of the club effectively and watching us go out, it was a really horrible day. But you know, that's where I co- I, I thought about coining that phrase that summed up everything. And the word was it was disastrous. It, I'm sorry, it was it was it was it was devastating to go out, devastating today, but not disastrous tomorrow. Uh, and and when I sat down in the stand to watch the game you know said to nicky look with those fans and with them behind us you know we'll be okay and I think um it was just as I did that and said that I think I think Match Powell gave her a penalty didn't he <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and mentally during that season how did you how did you manage to cope with 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 all those pressures? Um did you rely on each other at, at that time?
4: Yeah I mean I, I think it's, it's a help, but also there are times when it can be a hindrance. It's certainly a help because you're both acutely aware of what's going on, so you understand uh, how the other is feeling. I think the downside of having us both doing it is that um, sometimes it can be hard to get away from the club. It can become the sort of permanent conversation because we are both so very involved in it. And, and obviously if things... Are not going particularly well at the time, then um, I guess that can become a bit tougher. But on balance, I think it was much easier um, having both of us involved than only one. I think you know it, it was it was always going to be a bit of an all-consuming job. Um, we knew that because we didn't have a massive uh, depth of, of management team to be able to get the club turned around, so it was going to need us both to be very hands-on so um, we, we went into it with the expectation that it was going to take up a lot of time and I think it would have been very difficult for one of us to do that and not the other um, so I think from that perspective having both involved has been a strength
5: yeah I mean just just going back to starting this I said I will if you will and, and I meant that at the time because I knew that I would get absolutely absorbed in it because my bag has always been dealing with troubled companies and, and I know what that means. And the second thing is I know what the club means and, you know, I've, I've been through it at every, every level as it were. So I, I was quite careful when we came. I knew that Nikki would have the enthusiasm to do something like this and would actually enjoy it as a challenge, et cetera. But I also, you know, I had to do things like change my language that when I came along, I used to use the term we all the time rather than I, because, you know, it was about getting Nikki accepted by the fans. Um, and, you know, she's done that very well. And people do accept that it's the pair of us in it. I think the the other side to your question was, you know, how do you feel about that? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fairly relaxed about crises because, you know, you, you always get a plan, you pull a plan together. And and when you get that plan together, you deliver it and, and, and whatever. So on the, I always look at on the, um, the morning that uh, we went out of the league, I was up at five o'clock um, and uh, I was I was working on a plan and I drew the plan up and, you know, I pulled the plan up. It's a five-year plan. I pulled it up uh, last year when we went up into League One, which is five years away. It was pretty much spot on in terms of where we were. There was a few detours along the way. I didn't, I didn't actually plan to stay for three years in, 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 the, in the National League. But, you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, if you've got a plan and you're working to the plan, you've got that structure, you're not pulled... This way and that way by the buffeting of what happens to you, and you keep focused on that, and uh, you know that that's that's the way I've always operated. And like you know, I'll find that. So it's, the point I'm making is that when we got up on Sunday morning, the, the fans got up and they were devastated. You know that because there was very little that they could do. Whereas for me, it was okay because I was I was working on what was going to happen, and I was on on the inside and knew it was going to happen, knew what we were going to have to do. Uh, yeah, it must be so frustrating for the fans who have, you know, an equal if not a greater love of the club and the, the organisation, but absolutely would have felt helpless at that point in time. And that's what stresses, uh, as opposed to having the ability to do things, which is, you know, which to me is relief stress.
0: And your relationship with the fans is, I mean, I, you can only sort of speak from being a trammy fan yourself. Myself, it's quite unlike any other relationship from from owners to. To fans, was that a priority of yours when you came into into the club?
4: Yeah, I think I think very much um, we set off from the outset um, with the the philosophy that we would try and be as open and honest with the fans as we could be because I think um, we both came from the perspective that if we've got sort of rational well thought out plans and decisions we're making about things why why would we be scared to explain that um to some of the fans because i think if you if you take decisions without communicating why you're doing certain things then people will make up all sorts of Uh, theories to fill the vacuum and they're almost always inaccurate, almost always worse than than the reality. I mean, obviously there are things that we can't talk about and we will say quite frankly um, when when that happens, we can't answer that. It's not appropriate to talk about individual players and contracts and there are certain things which are commercially sensitive. But that aside, uh, we always have tried to uh, to explain, we've we've been as open as we can with the the the, the figures and the business plans with the fans, and and um, we've tried to tackle it head on when we faced criticism. I remember uh, one particular thing: uh, some fans being very unhappy with some changes that were made. I think with the Bunny Bell bar arrangements and. Um, it, it was perhaps the first time there'd been a bit of a storm on, on Twitter where they were sort of getting up in arms about things and uh, we just said "Well, come down and, and meet us and, and speak to us and we'll explain what's going on and we did and they they were they were fine. There are still some who might not agree with the, the decision but it just sort of took the, the, the sting out of it all. People are generally more reasonable if they understand the rationale of what you're trying to do.
5: The, the, when I was at the FA, there were a couple of things that that um, were obvious to me, it, it, and that was that um, on the one hand, clubs always fought with the local council. By and large, they had problems with that, and they fought with the trust. And when, when you sat back and looked at it logically, the the trust um, had actually probably at heart. If you, if you take out individual agendas, but it probably had at heart the same objectives that you had, which is for the club to prosper. They may have different views as to how it would happen, but they had at heart the same thing. So it was illogical that they should be fighting the club generally. And the, the, the third thing in all of this is that if you then start to really look at the club, it is a concept. You know What you see, the owners have the shares in what is a corporate body Whereas it's actually a concept of club, and that's why I, I started to use the phrase: "Look, the fans are the club because they are the club." You know, and you look at Wimbledon and what happened there. The essence of Wimbledon has continued through through the, the, the you know the Phoenix Club. So, if you put all those things together, we turned up and uh, we met with the guys from the Trust. And you know, again, I'm, I'm happy to take anybody on on the figures because it was my you know, bread and butter. And I said, well, actually, if if this makes a a structural loss of a million quid. How, I said, how much can you raise? You want to buy the club? What? what? And they sort of said, oh, about half a million. And I said, well, okay, that gives you six months. Good luck. You know, so so once you start to get to that honesty, so what you're going to do about it? So instead of that, um, we were very fortunate, I think, in the terms of the people that we had in the trust at the time, uh, and they came on board and they've been massively helpful. And so. You know as Nikki says we've got nothing to hide so come and talk you through so we'll share figures with people the only thing you've got to do is to be able to trust them with things that are commercially sensitive so if we're in the middle of negotiating something like a new pitch you wouldn't be giving away your negotiating position if you're talking about individuals and, and you know i've got some experience of the media from when i was at the fa and i know that what they try to do is to personalize things and polarize it so one of the things you'll find is that we—I never criticise anybody who's worked at the club, uh, because it's quite simple that when they're there, you know, they probably have done the best that they've tried to do. You might not agree with everything that they've done, and so on. So they are the sort of the, the red lines that we draw in terms of communicating with the fans. The rest of it then becomes quite easy. And uh, you know, I don't—I don't do that much social media. Nikki does most of that. Um,
0: Nicola, the the social media side of it is. Uh quite a new one isn't it really for for owners and chairmen and mm. uh, to, to be on there and to be quite open like you are you know you're often seen helping on like match days even just little tiny things whether it's tickets or, or what's going on with the pitch and stuff um was that again another conscious effort for you to to bridge that gap almost with the fans?
4: Yeah, I I think so. It's just trying to be a bit of the sort of human face of the club rather than just sort of faceless owners. Which is
5: why I let Nicky do it rather than me. I'm I'm still a hard bitten midfielder (laughs) from (laughs) the 70s and 80s. (laughs)
4: so so, yeah it was i mean i think um i've I've learned how to adapt to it um as time has gone on i've learned um if we've just lost a game of football it's best not to look at twitter for 24 hours because I tend to get bombarded with angry comments and then people will reflect on it overnight and be much more reasonable and rational uh, the next day. And it's, it's surprising how many people actually retract their comments overnight. So, I, I, you know, I've, I've learned to, to take the praise that you get in the good times with a pinch of salt and the criticism that you get in the bad times with a pinch of salt. Um, because I think, you know, if you take out the extremes of either, then you're probably getting left with what's a fairly sensible picture of, of how things are going.
5: In terms of, in terms of that, you know, if, if you want some insight in, certainly the way I work is it, read the poem if by Kipling, you know, so you, you treat Triumph and Disaster and treat those two imposters, both the same as it were, and lots of other things within that poem, you, you'll get an insight into the way I approach it. For me, social media, is um a a pretty dangerous tool i i personally um, i'll switch off from it at times completely um i think it's interesting because you you i've I've always said you've got to be cognizant of you know the flavors that are coming through but not a slave to it and and so you know that that's why for example at, at the right time i'll i'll give out a a, um, an expose, for example, to somebody like Tom Cavilla, where you, you have the chance to sit down and explain your thoughts. The problem with Twitter is that, you know, you, you know, especially in terms of financial analysis, it's just absolutely nuts to engage in that. Yeah, on, and on, short soundbites. Yeah, you and know, short soundbites. So, you know, that type of stuff for me is, is is just a no-no, and you'll never get comment from me on that. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, some of the stuff that's gone out, I mean, there was something the other day that somebody put out about me personally, and I, I could have sued him three times for libel, for what he said but you know there's no point you just move on and 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 you just sort of you, you're cognizant of where it fits in the scheme of things and also that you know that the majority of fans um understand what you're trying to do and how you're trying to do it
0: absolutely and it's difficult isn't it as as fans like you say you don't really get the full picture at times um and, and as you said before we can often go down a bit of a fantasy world of of things that might be happening might not be happening and as you said you know a lot of them well it, most of them aren't true um with yeah, think, i think the thing i would say
5: is that um uh, you know we do recognize that at the end of the day apathy would kill us yeah so you do need that passion in the fans and if and if there is no way of you know of, of relieving that and it's as nicky says i mean some of them will will we'll say what they want to say on a Saturday night. Well, I tell you what, don't speak to me if we've had a bad performance in the hour <laughs> after the game, you know, because I'm like, to tune in, even if you're in the boardroom. So it, it's just, it, I'm just the worst person. If we, if we've done badly, if we have played well and lost, I'm not so bad. But if I think we've underperformed, I'm terrible. So I accept all of that and we accept the rough with the smooth. It's just a times <clears> when, when you see people using social media for their own personal agenda that you just you just rail against it but than that <laughs> but, but, but mark makes a, a
4: a good point and it's what you do have to remember at the times when you're getting sort of angry tweets from people that if they're angry it means they still care um, yeah and, and it's actually when the fans have stopped caring that that you've really got to worry
5: and i think that's i think that's where the club was to some extent there was a resign there's a, a resignation to some extent certainly i felt that when we came along and and you know, people say, well, was it worse than you expected? And I'll say no. And that's partly because, you know, the club was was um, it was just like any other business that I've been into that's been struggling for years. And I, I often say it's not so much the fabric that, you know, the, 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 the desks, the chairs, the painting the stuff and, and the, the general decor that, that that's deteriorated. Um, um, it's actually the culture within the business. It's the people who, who have always had the answer no to this or no to that, and therefore they've lost that sort of enthusiasm to try and do things and do things differently and work. And so that, that you know that's one of the things that was was hidden in there. And you, I expected it because that's what you see in businesses like that. Um, but equally, you'll find some gems in the people that w- when you come and it's it's sorting out those guys, which has happened over the years. So we now have a you know a totally different culture in the club and very much you know a can-do attitude and very much an attitude that. Um, You know, community is as important as football, which is important. And, you know, so it's those cultural changes that people can't really see, although those people who now interact with the club can, can, can sense it in a very tangible way. You know, the club does try. It isn't like there's the club and the club and this and you know, all the other fans are always a nuisance and always complaining about this and complaining about that you know we recognize things like the are accused to get in we recognize things like the website doesn't work that well it hasn't worked that well we recognize the ticketing system is, is difficult and it's always a question of how you can get to them when you can get to them but i tell you what if the fans are only moaning about the ticketing system then that that's not too bad
0: <laughs> yeah i was going to say it's not bad at all that is it yeah. um, and you mentioned that Obviously, Tramia uh, and most football clubs have a, a really passionate support, um, but that can often lead to quite a tough environment for players, particularly the young ones uh, yeah. who are new to the club. Um, what kind of work does a club do to educate, protect and, and prepare the players for, for that environment?
5: I, I, I think there's very little that you can do about it. Um, i mean the whole Triple system now is is much more geared towards uh, i mean th- th- the actual training of of players now the the english system that came through the age specific coaching is based on what they call a four corner model and I, I have some input into that way back in my days in the at the at the um at DFA and um what that does is it looks at four different corners it's tactical and technical there's there's um the sort of fitness <laughs> elements, the physical stuff. And then there's, then there's the sociological and the psychological, two different aspects. So they try and you know develop a much more holistic human being, as it were, and they work quite hard on that. Having said that, when you move from that into the ruthless environment <laughs> of a first-team dressing room, and I would argue a first-team dressing room has a lot of Merseysiders in it. It's quite a difficult environment. I, I was in the dressing room. I was brought up in it, so, you know, you learn to be sharp you learn to be able to sort of take you know and, and to be ready with the, you know the quick the quick return etc but if you don't in a, in a in a scouse or a Merseyside dressing room you'll sweat you'll sink and I, it hasn't changed that much since when i was playing i went from tramir to crew and i remember going to the crew dressing room and thinking these are you know oh quite gentle g- people gentle nice lads sort of thing and 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 whereas that, and then when i came back to tram and i was back into the into the mix again so it is very difficult to um, to prepare lads for that massive step change. What what one of the things that I did do when I came here was to put the academy training right next door and in the same building as the first team, so that that transition isn't that difficult. There's still a way to go, and uh, you know there's still an element to be filled in between the academy and the first team. But you know, so what happens is you're playing on one pitch the first team require more bodies for the uh, session uh, you know a shadow session etc and so they'll pull lads across from 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 the academy and into the first team environment so you know there's a lot more of that that goes on the reality is again going from the training field and onto a, a, a down that tunnel and in front of a paying crowd it is massively difficult and massively different and you know you you can actually get off and i think one of the things i've always said to players that come here is that and it may be an old-fashioned term but we're a working-class club you go on that pitch and you put effort in for the team and that gets you sort of 60 percent of the way there with the fans and they'll put up with that um if you don't put the effort in, they'll kill you at this club and i think beyond that then of course the icing on the cake is if you can play and you can do this and you could do that but you you know the, the the base level line is to get um is to get that work rate out of you and 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 that is you know all you can really say to kids that, that, that are coming
4: through hmm. and uh, but the other element is they do get quite a lot of training and guidance on social media and stuff now. Because, again, I think that that's a big transition for kids from being a sort of 14-, 15-, 16-year-old who uses social media between his mates, as kids do, to suddenly being somebody who's, uh, you know, potentially in the spotlight of the media and they've got to suddenly mature and grow up very quickly uh, in, in that environment. Yeah, and
5: it's one of the things that now when we're looking at players, I look at the social media of a player. And uh, you get a, a real feel for it on social media around the player, interaction with fans, etc. And you know, it, it fairness to say it's thrown up in the in the recent past some some um, some red flags. And you then have to make a judgment call on the basis of whatever else is in that player, etc. So it is a, it is a, something that they need to be aware of. Um, recently, we've, as you may have recalled, because one of my PESH is the 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 impact of the internet on sound like a real old-fashioned man don't I the internet <laughs> the, the internet wide web the, the the internet on the, the information superhighway on uh, <laughs> on on gambling and uh, you've seen that and I think with the um, with the um, quarantine in in, in um, currently in place that just is a, a really fertile ground for for developing um developing a gambling addiction so uh what we will do going forwards is to increase the the education around that and so in our college and in our academy you know that's going to be something that we will work on so you know that we are there are things that come from time to time the pfa sends people down to do stuff with the youngsters but the reality is that um you know uh, they're better looked after than they were in, in my day and uh, in, in Ray Mathias' day, but we weren't far off putting kids up chimneys before Nikki says it. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, you used to have to clean the dressing I never, I got away without cleaning the dressing because I was never an apprentice because I was at school, when I was at St. Anselm So uh, I never, I never really went through the apprenticeship um, bit.
0: And uh, we've heard quite a lot about like uh, the term psychology and mentality used over like a lot of, last six years almost. Um, in terms of mental health, uh, just as a general club, um, what level of importance is, is put on on that please you, from yourselves?
4: I mean, as a club as a whole, I think it's something that we've uh, tried to put quite a, a strong focus on in terms of what we do on the community. We do a lot of work um, on mental health in the community because I think one of the things that football clubs can do Um, is engage with people who are struggling with things like mental health issues uh, in a way that some of the authorities, the NHS or the council or whatever, find very hard to get people engaged in. So, for example, um, there has been a a big increase in um, depression and suicide in in young men. and the local council were struggling to to get the people affected to really engage with the services that they could offer. So now a lot of that gets outsourced to us and we do it through the prism of the club. Because if you've got a 22 year old man who's struggling with mental health issues and you ask him to turn up to a clinic appointment, he's not likely to do it. If you invite him to come down to the club for a game of five side football with uh, a group of other people of similar age who've got similar issues and then build a support programme around that, um, it's, it's much more likely that they'll come and keep coming. And it becomes a bit of a sort of self-fulfilling uh, self-help programme, because by taking the physical activity, they're starting to release serotonin in the brain, which makes them feel better, and they're socialising, which makes them feel uh, better. So it's it's a good model that works, and, and we are very conscious of, of trying to use the prism of football like that um, to do good. And in terms of our own staff as well, we've had a number of the staff trained up as uh, mental health first aiders recently uh, to try and, and be able to, you know, spot the signs that when people are, are perhaps struggling and not being open about it and knowing what to do um, in that situation, how how you can help and tackle it.
5: Yeah, I mean, my degree was in psychology, so I, I do have a particular interest in it and I work in Western Hospital um, in the afternoons, in, in my first year when I was, when I signed as a pro after university, and um, I, uh, you know, so I always have an eye towards that. And the big thing for me uh, is is all about the culture in the business, and you know, I think it's it's something that we we we, as I say, we've tried to change. Um, we 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 there was no um, real HR system to speak of within the business. And that, that's wrong for a whole host of reasons, not just because of the, the impact on people, um, but also because of the impact on the business per se. So the good businesses is why, you know, if you have a, a happy and healthy workforce, then it makes makes a big difference anyway. And then it's always a bit of a, a tautology if we're if, if we, if we if we're acting in one way with our community, but not within the business itself. So, you know, I think people have accepted that, you know, this this... This this thing about Chalmers being a community club is part of the culture, and I keep coming back to the phrase: "Community is as important as football," rather than being something that's outside. It's a bit of do good in that we do, um, I, you know. And, and you, if, if you if you want to move on to the gambling thing, that really comes straight off the back of that because it is about using the whole. When we came here, one of the things I wanted to do was to use the club in a way that it was, that, that it could be used as a community asset, because I think that we can deliver things better uh, and we're a much more efficient local delivery vehicle for the reasons that we're saying. As an unconventional organization, you can get alternative provision kids to want to come to school, which, you know, our records show that um, for, for mental health, you know, and, and inclusion come and play, as Nicky says. If you want to talk about gambling, this is another classic one. We've had calls already, uh having put that um line in place last friday and we've had people who've come in and told us that they've got problems etc so we've been parking them in the in the system in the right way Um, so again it's 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 this whole thing of using the club effectively as a delivery vehicle in the community so we can also get our sponsors and our business contacts to make contributions through their csr their corporate social responsibility budgets and bring money to a situation that the council for example couldn't do, and then you, when you tie all that together, you know you start to get outcomes and results that are that are, that are good and then you get the added benefits of of people who are fans of the club actually feeling proud of their club again absolutely,
0: yeah, I think that's one of the main things that is has changed is that I don't think any Trammy fans are embarrassed to to support them at this moment it's, in time
5: but maybe it's an interesting comment that that people were ever embarrassed to support us
4: but you do you hear that about the kids in particular yeah. um we we get feedback from a lot of parents about um you know in in the not too distant past um kids being embarrassed to say they were Tranmere supporters at school because everybody was Liverpool or Everton supporters, whereas now they're quite proud of it and and it's become, you know, much more common um, in in the rural schools uh, to see loads of, of young Tranmere supporters, which is really great.
5: Want to be part of the SWA too.
4: Yeah.
6: Just before we jump on the gambling, Mark, I just wanted to come back to a comment you made and wanted to get your stance on the lack of reserve team football helping players mature. Now we have a much more sanitised under twenty three sort of version of of football, and we had Alex Taylor on the show recently, former player, and he was talking about how great it was for him being seventeen, eighteen, managed by Mike Newell at the time as reserve team manager, have, and having Alex. and having the likes of uh, David Kelly um, and people like Chief Wayne Allison be in the reserve team and play with them and help them mature. What what are your thoughts on going back to the old format? We have. I, I, there's a full professional, like not professional, but full league now for reserve team football. Is that?
5: Yeah, we actually have a reserve side, and the fact I was speaking to Parky yesterday, we were looking at plans for the future, and uh, he was saying how well it had worked this season. So we were doing that this season. And it, it, um, it, it, it's, I mean, listen, there's, there's loads of stuff on this. I mean, I, I, I was, I'm, a, was a director of British Judo, and I did the development plan for British Judo after the two thousand and twelve Olympics with, with Wood, um, would woodward clark woodward uh the whole thing about development is is you know it's your games program really when you're getting into sort of 16 17 18 19. i i think the whole e system is flawed both from a commercial aspect and i've spoken out against it uh, and also conceptually in terms of developing players and you've got a whole host of people i'm sure that alex was talking about the whole host of players who will never play men's football it's actually not that different to the situation when i was a player and what we had then is what we used to call um central league players and so liverpool at the time we'd have a whole host of guys who played in the central league and when they came to try and play in what we used to call men's football in, in league th- in league division three and division four league one and two now and um, they couldn't hack it you still see that today whereby if you're going to watch a player and he's playing on the 23s football you know, they'll pass it, and they'll pass it, then you'll have it, and so forth and so on. Um, It's not really the best ground whereby which you can try players. Now, I think over the last few years, people have got in these clubs have got to the uh, position whereby they understand that they probably need to put players out on loan. And that's been starting to develop. And I would think that that is one of our advantages because we are an attractive club for players to make that bridge between under-23 football and league football, but not necessarily when we were in the National League. So we didn't bother too much about it then. We didn't stay too long in League 1. Uh, and now we're in, sorry, in League 2. And now we're in League 1. Um, you know, that's something that becomes a real possibility because players wouldn't come to you if you're in the national league if they were in the under 23s at liverpool or everton and the players friends wouldn't want them to go the family wouldn't want them to go the agent wouldn't want to go wouldn't want them to go and even the clubs didn't want them to go so you know this is something that because of us moving up it, it's changed now we actually do have um a set of reserve team games not 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 40 games but we have i don't know how many games we have but we have a set of fixtures it's partly because just having the first team squad meant that if you weren't in the team and um the team was doing well as we were in the cup for a couple of seasons you, you were almost out of um, match practice now again we had that when i played we were top of league 1 around about january time and then all of a sudden we had we had it's when we had the team that had been unchanged for about 28 games it's a league record the same 11 then we had a run of injuries and we had um, a, a, a run of suspensions and we haven't played rex i think we lost 6-1 and you know, and those guys were never ready to come straight into the first team because because of that now okay you've got you've got um the chance to be on the bench now and loads of substitutions and stuff like that but the reality is they need a a games program and equally that helps the lads who come in and play alongside i remember playing alongside um alan king when i first started playing on the oval and their little lad that he was fishing around and he said, give him a reducer. I don't know what a reducer was, <laughs> but <laughs> King showed me and I, and, I, and, I, and I never forgot it. You know, so it's, I'm not saying I'm not advocating that, obviously, but w- what I am saying is the principle of learning from senior pros um, has to be right. And, uh, you know, and, and Parkey was just saying that he was very pleased with what had happened this this season in terms of what what opportunities he got for players to come through. Uh, and, and it's 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 easier to judge players um, when you see whether they can make the step up or not from youth football from under and you know from under twenty threes in terms of the the uh, the clubs. Now, one last thing on this in terms of strategic plan. If you look at the um, the uh, the demographic of Liverpool as a city on the on Merseyside, and you look at the demographic of Liverpool Football Club's first team, you'll find that you know. There's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of difference. So where are those lads going to go? And my argument is they should be coming to us um, out of out of their academies, and, and that would that is, a, I think, a plausible strategy to have. And people come to you and say, well, you know, you, you got rid of the academy below under sixteen, and you know, we're going to have no more Kumases and Eddie Clark and Cresswell's. Kumas came to us from Liverpool, age sixteen. Eddie Clarke came. He'd been at Liverpool and Everton. I think he came at age 15. Uh, and um, you know, I think Cresswell came from Liverpool or Everton, Everton. I think it was, at 12. You know, so they came across from Everton Liverpool in the first place. The fact of the matter is that these days, Everton and Liverpool and Premier League clubs have got so much cash, they can completely stockpile all the youngsters. And, so, and they can also nick our youngsters. So Kumas' lad went to Liverpool aged 11. I think we got about... They paid us more than they needed to pay us. They paid us £15,000 and we get a sell-on at some stage in the future. Now, that is absolutely ludicrous from a business proposition. So, you know, they've passed basically the risk from those that can most afford it to those that can least afford it in terms of developing players.
6: Just to move on to, to the gambling side then, could you just talk about the latest initiative you've done and how that came about?
5: Yeah, it comes off the back that I have a personal hatred of of uh, the way that gambling has, has has developed under the internet, and my knowledge if 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 you like, it's the same reward mechanism that that puts you into sort of phobias and everything else. It's reward and punishments, and and it's insidious, and that's the worst thing about gambling because uh, excessive gambling. Because I'm I'm not a you know uh, one of these guys who's, who's preaching and saying you know we are the fun police and you can't do it. Gambling has existed and being around human, it's part of human nature. It's just when it becomes excessive. And I just think the combination of the opportunities that are now afforded by uh, the internet uh, has has exacerbated that and also the relationship within football. If if I'm the chief exec of a uh, a gambling business, what do I want my marketeers to do? I want them to increase my market share. I want them to increase the, the size of the market. And so you're always looking for novel ways in which to do that. And opportunities, etc., and that is part and parcel of what the internet's about. Massively increased the opportunities. They've they've normalised it. They it's part of the normal sort of football day and and week, uh, and so all of a sudden you've got these increased opportunities. Now, if you look at Birkenhead in particular, um, I forget the exact details now, but you will find that in virtually all of the shops are at the limit. Of the number of terminals they can have because they are limited by the government. So it is the number of opportunities. We were approached last year by, uh, and we've been approached by um obliquely by various um, betting companies, but last year we were approached by a big national, international name and said, can we put um monitors uh, at points in the ground, betting points betting in the terminals. ground, betting terminals in the ground? And we just said, no, it's because it doesn't fit with us in terms of, we weren't looking. For any profile on this just like we weren't looking for profile when we quietly banned the which would have nothing to do with them and um and, and but what happened was that uh, when we had the cup run at the same time it came out that if you wanted to see one of the third round games with bet 365 you um you had to put a bet on or open an account which i thought was outrageous and you know because i was the former chief exec of the FA and because we were doing the FA cup and we were still in it. And this was there, it came out and I just spoke against it. Cause I think it was wrong. And then, you know, people started to look at it and it wasn't by design, but I was quite pleased, you know, of the six teams that, that played in the playoff finals last year, we were the only one that didn't have a betting company on our, on our, on our shirts. And so it, it when when I looked at it, this, when COVID came along, I thought, look, these are ideal conditions. And I didn't read anything. I just know that they're ideal conditions for people to get an addiction. And if you look at what a, add- I I keep saying this, if, if, you're, if you're an alcoholic, uh, you, people will see the signs of your addiction. If you are a gambling addict, uh, I, will get, I would bet that the first sign of addiction that you will see is when money goes missing. And we've had examples of people within the club Uh, within the playing staff, and way back in my career, because again, you get back to people got money and boredom and players have always been involved in gambling. The reason I became the PFA rep for Tramere, and I was, was because the previous rep, uh, when asked why the subs hadn't been paid by the players, who'd paid him the money for the subs, said he'd gone down on the 2.30, he at him. And and you know that was it really? It, yeah. it's, it's, it's been there all the time. I think the the, the, the circumstances now are you know are, are even more difficult for people, uh, in terms, and the opportunity to become an addict is 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 inc- incredibly increased. And it's just something that, you know, if we really are Wirral's Family Club, then this is one of the things that that kills relationships. It kills the trust. It kills the trust that underpins relationships. And those relationships—it's not just that one person that gets damaged; it's everybody in that family. And and, and so, I'll, I'll get a bit zealot-like on it, but the reality is that it is something that we can deal with, we can help with. In the same way that we produce a community of people who, you know, are, are perhaps you know depressed or whatever and and socially isolated, we can get a, a community of people who are, you know, who are recovering addicts or recovered addicts, and they can get strength from it. And so when we come out of the the coronavirus epidemic, we will then put in place something that's much more permanent, you know, when people can get together and so forth and so on. At the moment,
1: you're
6: you're spot on, really. I must admit, from a personal point of view, since I've been on the lockdown, although I've still been working from home, I, I banned myself from two. I'm not normally addicted at all with anything, apart from attending Tramia matches. And uh, I actually banned myself from two of the big-name ones because I found myself just putting, like, £20 in a day, which I'd never, ever do. And I yeah. uh, to the yeah. lads the other day, I was Ooh. like, I don't know I'll why I'm that. doing this. I'd never do it, um, other than maybe on a Saturday, or like a five or a tenner. But I was doing it most nights on, like, slot machines. I was thinking, what am I doing? So I banned myself.
4: Um, it's
6: very so insidious
4: mom. in this type of environment and i think one of the things that is is my particular pet hate on it is where they give you sort of 50 pounds worth of free bets to get you started because that is absolutely preying on the people for whom you know having that initial stake money would be a barrier so they you know they're, they're deliberately hooking in people who just can't afford to lose the money uh and it's it's just really insidious and and we've seen it and, and the damage that it causes firsthand, too many times, really, to ignore it.
5: It's just one of my <laughs> big bet noirs. And, and uh, it just so happens that, you know, it, you know we, we're not preaching to other clubs because at the end of the day, the, the game has to wean itself off the, the, the reliance on uh, betting monies. And, you know, if, if we're talking about coming out of COVID, there's already a very difficult financial landscape in the game and clubs are going to come out of it much weakened compared to when they went into it so you know money's going to be at a premium and it's going to be difficult for the game to sort of find an alternative source of the, the amount of income that comes in through I mean and we 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 take in cash from the fact that the league is the Sky Bet League but there's nothing we can do about that you know we have to leave that Sky Bet logo on our on our website but you know other than that what we can do is try and help the people who get addictions And actually limit the damage that that gets done in the name of the football club
4: yeah because if if you talk to addicts they will tell you that seeing these 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 adverts that come up during a game or whatever um it, it does impact them and i think if you haven't had an addiction to gambling maybe you don't appreciate it in the same way but You know, we want to be an environment where they're not getting that forced at them all the time. So we're not telling people not to gamble, but we are trying to provide an environment that is supportive for people um, for whom, as the uh, trite phrase goes, the fun has stopped.
6: Do you think there's been much of a change in the attitude of the FA since your time there, Mark, and what they're doing to help with all things that tie back into mental health, whether it's addiction, depression and just support for players?
5: Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, I say this about racism and, and uh, in sport, that sometimes the game claims credit for things that are really um, driven by change in the community generally. So, for example, you know, it's not acceptable to do certain things in terms of racism and, and exclusion and things like that, whereas in the 70s it was. And, and I don't think that you know, the FA and the league and everybody else has changed that. I think they've responded to changes that have happened in, in, in communities. So I think there's a, there's a greater awareness of, um, you know, mental health. I think there's a greater awareness of the dangers of gambling. Uh, and I think to some extent the FA has responded to it rather than led on it. And um, but I think that's, that's the function of the, where the FA is. And I think it just, it just, it just, it just is what happens. And um, I think in terms of, you know, the FA Cup and, and what happened there, I think they were just caught out by timing because they had a big, um, they had, a, if you remember, when I was at the FA, they had McDonald's there as their sponsor. They were in a contract, and I was, you know, invited by the chief exec of McDonald's, and he was trying to persuade me. And I remember sitting in their head office, and and they had all kinds of salads on the desk. And
2: <laughs> what, at the
5: end of the day, you know, I I was salivating for a Big Mac and chips. <laughs> and, and you know, it's it's just like now that the the FA. Have have, ter- have terminated about two years ago. I think it was they terminated their agreement with Littlewoods, uh, not Littlewoods, um, uh, the big betting company that they were associated with. And uh, but what they had done is signed a, an agreement with um, uh, with a company who then unsold the rights to Bet Three Six Five, as I understand it. And as a consequence, they, they may have been a bit sharper in determining who was going to who they were the rights to but things have moved on and so whilst the fa is now distancing itself from gambling this was an old contract that was allowed and that's what happened with bet 365 and that's how all this sort of came about at the time in terms of mental health you know the 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 um i I find there's a little bit of a a, uh can i say hypocrisy or is it certainly a contradiction if the the afl has adopted sort of the mental health uh, agenda, as, as its sort of charity of, of choice, um, whereas at the same time it has such a, a pernicious, um, almost addiction to gambling itself. In terms of the way gambling finances so much of the game, and yet gambling, I think, really does go to damaging the mental health of not just the addict, but the people who are in the sort of the you know the circle of influence of the addict. You know, the the, the brothers, the sisters, the sons, the daughters, the husbands, the fathers, you know, the mothers, et cetera, of of gambling addicts, because all their mental health issues, I would imagine, get impacted by somebody who's seriously addicted. So it's just one of those horrible things. And all you do is you you keep trying to to move the thing on as best you can. If there is some kind of movement within football, whereby, you know, people get to have the same point of view of us, then fantastic. But at the end of the day, I recognise that a lot of clubs at this point in time, have severe, finance, severe financial problems and, you know, it is a it is a source of cash into the game.
6: Yeah, and it, it just naturally goes hand in hand with with um, football, as um, Anne touched on in our last episode, as does horse racing. You never yeah. know who's won a horse race without knowing what the odds are. And it yeah. seems to be a similar thing with football. And I always find it strange that Sky, um, they can have punditry and then offer odds at half time, and you kind of think it doesn't seem ethically right that you have a say on the match and then suggest odds for people to bet on it almost coax them in Um, just to move on from the gambling a little bit um, obviously uh, football and alcohol is also something that comes up quite a lot Um, and and football seems to get it a little bit tougher than than other sports and just wanted to sort of get your, your feelings on that because obviously you must have to deal with the licensing and all the things that go on that people don't see on match day football fans are given a bad reputation often linked to alcohol do you think they're treated differently to other sports uh rugby or um yeah.
4: yeah absolutely and and i think a lot of it came about as a as a knee-jerk reaction to hillsborough um at the time where you know the mantra that was being trotted out by the press and the police and uh and the government at the time was that that had all been caused by Um, alcohol and and, you know fan bad behaviour as as a result of excessive drinking and so you've got these sort of very draconian rules brought in as a bit of a knee-jerk reaction Um, and I think since then, much of that narrative around what happened at that game and the causes for it, as we know, have been completely turned on their heads and and actually alcohol wasn't a big part of it. And I think it's probably time to have a a sensible and grown-up look at, at, at the... Uh, the rules that we have because I think some of them are just farcical um, I mean you know when you're in as as Mark and I often are boardrooms and hospitality boxes where you're having a sort of fairly formal uh, lunch and I have to pull the blinds down because um, the rules say that you're not allowed to drink alcohol inside of the football pitch it's just a nonsense but I mean it you know if, if the issue is people getting drunk, then getting drunk behind the blind is not going to be any different to getting drunk with Get the blinds, blinds open. So yeah. uh, you know it, that, that's just a nonsense rule that that, that and and, and, it, and it causes immense issues for us. so you know um, fans who want to have a pint at half time. Um, For example, you know, people all down the town end when the bunny bell gets over full, we have another unit there that we could serve beer from so that people can get a pint at half time, but we're not allowed to because it's in sight of the pitch um and and structurally it's just not um an option um to 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 screen it off for, for safety reasons for crowd safety reasons so things like that absolutely i think they do need uh looking at i mean i think it is right to say there was a period in the 1980s where um football uh had a bad reputation and alcohol certainly played a part in that but i think it was a much more complex problem than just the fact that that people uh, were able to get alcohol because to me it makes no difference if people go to a pub next door to a football ground and have 10 pints before they come into the ground and they drink it in the ground it doesn't make any difference i, I think
5: I, I agree with part of that um, and that is that there's a lot of hangover from maggie maggie thatcher's hatred of, of football as it were as it was explained to me at the time i think you know there is an unfortunate relationship between excessive drinking and i keep coming back to excessive but excessive drinking and, and football and football violence and um the real difficulty is i i was i was at the fa when we did um euro 2004 and i was um i, I brought in um uh, a senior policeman who basically was was responsible for looking at um, football hooliganism because we were in danger of being kicked out of the tournament, and also terrorism at the same time because that was going on in terms of the Madrid bombings, etc. And I learned quite a bit about what they call sort of low-profile policing, etc. And 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 it was about educating the police forces on because we we'd seen we'd been seen to eradicate hooliganism around football uh, quite effectively by the time we got there. Having said that, there were still incidents like wat and uh, you know, when a copper was killed, etc. So England was still on, on, on the verge of being thrown out if there's any 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 dangers there. I think the one thing that we, we've got to accept is that loutish and and, and basically boorish behaviour, you know, singing and shouting and whatever, it isn't a riot, and it was how the police responded to it. And we saw that with, with all due respect to the the Welsh police and the Cheshire police, how they responded to Trammer fans. Um, going to, to those games. They were up like Robocop, etc. <laughs> yeah. whereas, whereas, whereas that actually was um, the attitude of what we would call the paramilitary forces in Europe, as opposed to the general, the northern police forces, who were much more acceptable of low profile policing. So what they'd do is they'd let the England fans sit and sing and dance and, and accept that that wasn't a riot and they would have like one or two police when they were watching it, whereas they had the dogs and the children police stuck back in the back streets in vans just in case, and the violence was a lot lower. If you talk in generalities about um, the Southern European police, and especially the paramilitary police, they were entirely different, and they would actually get involved and cause some of the violence. And I think that's a lot of what happened in terms of the English fans and, and the fans' behaviour. Having said that, you know, undoubtedly, there still is this linkage that, you know, you don't see at rugby and um, it, it's almost a cultural thing. And, and and that's one of the things that's disappointing about football. One of the things I would say about our fans and our away fans, I think they get the balance right in most of the cases. we we'll are like the odd um, risk group, as it were. But, you know, Nick and I are extremely sort of um, proud of our away fans on the basis that, you know, the, the amount of... Um, the amount of uh, praise that we get for them is immense. You know, from A, yes, they're noisy and, they're, and they're, they support the team and, and right to the end. And, you know, the, the incident at, I'm not, I'm not going back to Plymouth again, but I'm going to Oldham last year when we just ended our seventh game winning run and we lost 2 nil. However disappointing that was and we were seeing Tequila at the end. Yeah. Um, but through all of that, what comes through is what I think is innate mercy side of humour, and the fact that the decent lads and, and you see that from many many people that you know that they they just like the way our away fans are, and I think we're very fortunate in that. And I, I would guess that lots of chairmen would say the same about their fans, but I think we're I think we're more right than them. So obviously uh, football is, is uh, particularly obviously
3: male football is 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 very masculine, very male dominated industry. As a, a club that's got. You know, quite a lot of people working in the the sort of um, in the the structure of the club that are that are female. Is that something that was a, a priority for the pair of you as a club to try and maybe work on more equal representation?
4: The thing, one of the things that that surprised me about Tramir, being honest, because I didn't know the club very well before I came here, um, I expected that i would get a lot of stick being involved in the club for being female you know somebody disagreed with something um that i did or said you'd get the what does she know she's a a woman and i can genuinely say i have not once ever had um a comment like that from any of our supporters and I, i think it's actually um a a a an, an extremely welcoming environment to females and you know, some of our sort of die hard fans, um, I think, you know, who are, are are absolutely well loved by the the, the real die hard uh, SWA are, are, are females, you know, you look at people like Audrey, you look at people like uh, Denise. Um, you know they've been supporting the club through thick and thin for donkey's years. They're always the first ones to to stand up and and help out. And I I like that about the fact that it's um as, as a club, you know it it is I think genuinely one that if you're a passionate fan about the club it doesn't matter whether you're male or female.
3: Yeah, it does seem to be when, whenever I you know whenever we're at home or away games. It, if you when I've been around or the. Football grounds and stuff. There does seem to be more of a split between the sexes at rugby than there is at a lot of other places, and it might just be one of those things, or it might just be that mm-hmm. it just happens to be the environment
4: Yeah, I've, ne- I've never looked at it on any scientific basis, but it 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 always feels to me that, as as to you like we have a an unusually high proportion of of female fans, and that that can't be a bad thing.
3: No, I agree. I think it's I think it's refreshing. I think it really is. Um, in terms of the the, the sort of the club's future then have you ever had any conversations or has it ever been a consideration of yours in terms of if you would have any reticence about potentially if and when you were to move on from the club who you would give almost stewardship over of it too
4: yeah absolutely it, it's it's a massive thing for us i think um in the same way that that peter johnson was keen to ensure that he sort of pass the reins over to somebody who would look after the club that's um that that's quite important to us and and we have received approaches in the past from people that we haven't entertained for the very reason that we just don't think they would be the right kind of people to get involved at at, at so i think that's that's a, a really important issue for us
5: the uh the um We've had approaches, and you know, some of the times were fairly difficult in, in the last five years. And you know, you, you might have thought, well, hand the baton on to somebody else to take it through, but it, it never really crossed our mind in the first place. And the second thing is, is actually absolutely getting the right people. So, um, one of the things you'd have seen is that the Santini group, extremely sensible people, um, they haven't massively invested in the club, they've got just over a 20% stake in the club now um and getting them to the position to to put in was not just a commercial decision it was also um again I keep using the phrase culture it was a cultural thing that was there a cultural fit with these people what was their motivation so we were first talking to them in November 2018 and really developing it through the first half of 2019 and, and in September they put in but by then we sort of knew them and we, you know, we speak to them. I certainly speak to them every 48 hours, at least, if not every 24 hours, in terms of just interaction on, 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 um, on, uh, on FaceTime, et cetera. So we, you know, they're, they're completely, as far as we're concerned, aligned with us, the, the, you'll have seen that, you know, some of the stuff that they've been doing is, is again, um, you know, it's what we call brand alignment that, you know, that they are particularly, Big in terms of doing stuff for their community over there in in Indonesia, and um, <clears throat> you know if if you if you start to look at our shirt sponsor uh, and B and M before was again another good local business that does a lot in its community. SR does a hell of a lot in its community and contributes quite a lot. I mean, some of the green people may not understand what they're trying to do, but they are still going to do stuff in there, and also. They do a lot within their SR foundation, et cetera. So we, we have alignment, you know, and, and that's where you, you, you see that and, and it get it then gets very easy and very comfortable because you're never sort of jarring with, with where one organization is about things. Um so it it is part and parcel of, of what we want to do.
4: And and actually what part uh, is-
5: and I've put out um a a supposed structure that, you know, if you're looking at all the problems of ownership of clubs. One of the things I've, I've tried to put out is that if you get 25%, that's owned by your local council, and they have a golden share, they can determine who comes in and takes the rest of the club. And if you have 25% that's sort of share, uh, fan-owned, that through a, through a vehicle that makes it, you know, um, not a million a million different shareholders, but you know, through one vehicle, then you've actually got potentially the uh, the structure um, that you could use for clubs going forward, making sure that a community asset and making sure that you get the right people who take that sort of private side of the club, say the other 50%. And so that's just a, an idea. And, and you know, that's not as stupid as it sounds for a council to use its money. If you're then using the club as a local delivery vehicle for lots of services that they commission, if you see what I mean. But and, and so for us, Ownership is is massively important, and it's one of the, the issues that we have to decide. Because you know, I'm certainly not getting any younger, uh, and we have to decide as to how we how we how we hand things across. We, you know, we've got partners in Santini that we have to respect, and and you know, they came in on the basis that we were here. So you know, th- there's there's a way to go yet before we actually uh, leave the stage, as it were. But you know, there's, there's still lots to do in the club.
4: But I think I think that that sort of time and investment that we put into, for example, making sure that Santini were the right partners for us, has really borne fruit in this coronavirus crisis. Because at a time when um, you know a lot of investors could have said, "Well, you know, we're not we're not happy to put any more money in right at the moment because of all the uncertainty about when football is going to restart and what the financial impacts will be, etc., etc." Um, they they did exactly the opposite and, uh, you know, were keen to see the plans go on um, and and help us through a difficult period. So put the next tranche of money in. So, um, you know, I think th- they're great partners to have on board from that perspective. And that's not by accident.
3: Yeah, I think um, I wouldn't want to speak on behalf of, of of anybody else, but just, I mean, there's somebody who's, who's supported the Clubs and South, you know, for the, about almost twenty five years now to to know that there's there's people in charge and people who are making the decisions that have got the the best interest of the club and the supporters and the community and stuff at heart is is an incredibly important thing and and I think you know there are, I su- I suspect that a lot of clubs that are the same but as Tranmere is a club that comes from a working class working class background and is very much centered in the community to to have that that spirit about it and have that that essence of it of what yeah. makes a football club important is is so important. And it I think Ryan and 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 Anstead both probably agree with me that I think we've we've all been Tramley fans for a long time. But I think the, the period of time since since you've both taken over and, and both turned the club into what it is at the moment is it's been the most enjoyable time and it's it's become a much nicer place to go to and a much more positive environment. And I think that obviously all comes from as you say the culture that you're you're trying to set in the club. Welcome back. You're still listening to Man marking. I've still got Anthony and Ryan in the uh, in the studio. Hi. I say studio. It's my living room, innit?
0: Yeah.
3: Um. What a studio, though. <laughs> what a studio. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that interview. We've um, we're gonna have a little bit of a brief discussion around kind of the importance of having positive, sort of responsible owners at, at, at football clubs, and we've obviously seen with the likes of Barry and Middlesbrough and. And Wigan and and Southend as well kind of how that can result in difficulties for these kind of old historic clubs if they're not running a in an appropriate manner Ryan this is something that, that we've obviously spoken about before and it's something yep. that, that that you're very passionate about I would say from your perspective then having owners like Mark and nicholin in charge of, of of our club of your club how much more comfortable does that make you in terms of the kind of longevity of your football club especially around a period such as we've had recently with the pandemic where businesses large and small are all under under threat given this is a you know a, a situation we've never faced before
1: yeah it's a, it's a good question um thank you it makes me <laughs> it makes me very happy and relaxed that we will be able to when it's safe to do so watch our football club um watch them represented in a way that they should be for for years to come What I like about what Mark and Nicola have done is they came in, they set a plan. I think Mark said it was a five-year plan. Um, He's now planning for the next five years, so there's always that forward thinking. But he's also even discussed quite openly the plans for when he's not at the club, Mm. which I think is very important because until people don't want to own a club, they don't really look at that, do they? It's not something where they go... I'm not going to be here forever, so um, I'm going to start future-proofing it now, which I like about what Mark's done. Um, I think he acknowledges that he's not going to be Tramus chairman for the next 15 years. Mm. So everything he's doing now is for like a better tomorrow. Um, the difficulty you have with football fans is they want everything now. So sometimes it's quite hard for them to appreciate that. Why isn't all the money going in the playing budget? Why have we missed out on him and another team signed him? All those type of things. And I think our strength these last few years, Tramuse, is not putting the most money into the playing budget, although we've been competitive and sound good players, it's the stability. And I think that goes a long way because the fan. if you get the fans to buy in it, uh, then you, I think you you release a bit of a pressure on the pitch uh, because they can see what's happening. Managers and players will more likely want to join you because the lower League at the moment is a bit of a cesspit of clubs who struggle to pay wages or have high turnover of players. And I think having a club, if you're a player now and coming off the back of this pandemic and you go you are going to offer me a two-year deal. They're going to honour it. I'm never going to miss a pay packet. That shouldn't be the case, but that's very attractive to players oh, now. Enormous. It shouldn't even be a question, really, not getting paid. But the reality is, it is. It's a big thing. And I
3: think that's probably the case for a lot of businesses, not just football clubs as yeah. well. For people who are non-Tramier fans, in the last sort of two years or so, we had uh, an investor who was brought on board by Mark and Nicola. They spent quite a long time kind of vetting and. Building a relationship up mm. with and getting the interest from from the uh, from the Santini group to to put that money into it, and I think they what do they own about twenty percent of Tramir at this point? Um, it was 15% fifteen percent initially, wasn't it?
1: And then with the pitch, I think they took out another ten. Yeah, I think. so
3: they own about a quarter of, of of the club, the Santini group, and they've been very vocal in their interest in in how the the club's going to progress. And I think you know. It's very difficult to know what would happen in the future, but from what it looks like, it looks like Mark and Nicola have done their due diligence, given Mark's background as an accountant and working with clubs and their financial, not just clubs, organisations under kind of financial difficulties. Nicola's got a, a legal background as well. Um, so they kind of know what they're doing with this type of thing. And I think it's a sensible you know, thing to do to go out and get external investments. We've seen it, I think, with this pandemic, I would imagine, without knowing the ins and outs of it, Cash flow is going to be very important for clubs at the moment because they're not getting that regular income. To go and get that investment from somebody external to be able to help at a time like this has been absolutely crucial. And whilst neither of the the owners or the investors were seeing the fact that there was a pandemic around the corner, they've been able to plan for whatever happens, Mm. this club will be financially viable one way or the other. And that's the most important thing. And it comes across in the interview, doesn't it, when when we spoke to them, was about for us they don't see themselves as anything other than custodians of the club, which is a word that we use in our theme. And that was to ensure the viability of the club. And you're in the same position as as us. We, we're all about the same age. when going to, to the match for a long time. We've seen, obviously, with other clubs, Macclesfield and Berry, for example, how that poor ownership, that, that you know difficulties with with payments and owing money and all the rest of it can get clubs into. If Tramia were to not exist... If the same thing was to before those that happened to Maxfield and Berry, what kind of impact do you think that would have on on the community, not just directly, you know, around the ground, but kind of Birkenhead more general, the Wirral more general?
0: Uh, well, it'd be huge. I mean, I know that there is a bit of a school of thought, particularly when um, when the Wirral Border Council were, were sponsoring us. That you know, should that be a thing? Um, there was a few detractors from it and it's never been the, the shining light of the community all the time. Mm-hmm. I think there was a period for a, for a good few years where people were kind of going, oh, let's make it a NASDAQ or something like that, you know, <laughs> particularly when we were struggling way back when in the, in, in the 80s. And um, I think it would be a, a massive miss, but I think any football club would be a massive miss to its yeah. community and I, I would say that doesn't really extend the, you know, just if you're completely ingrained in a community, I think even if you're just there, yeah. Because there are shops that are built, that are places that you can go and eat, and, and we see of a lot of them now. At the you know new stadiums are built in retail parks and and, and the like, and mm. they're the main attraction really, you know, and it's a big big day out essentially. And as much as we we like to give a bit of stick, there's no like history there or whatever. That is a, a viable option for clubs now to to go and you know plonk themselves in the middle of this mm-hmm. nice new. Revamped um, influx of, of of money, really, mm-hmm. um, and to be the of that. So I think that would that would be a, it would be a massive miss And, and you know, we we spoke about it before about like you know we've mentioned lower league clubs, but you know we go back to I think around two thousand and ten, maybe two thousand and eleven. Liverpool were kind of in the same situation where it was, you know, a few minutes too late, and mm-hmm. might not be the same Liverpool you're looking at today. And that was from two owners who came in probably weren't quite well vetted yeah. and and kind of mismanaged everything. I think there was a few loans taken out and the money just quite wasn't there. Um and we look at it with, with Manchester United as well, it's been a long running thing and obviously what skews that is is the, the amount of money that United are able to spend. Yeah. But I think when you actually look into the finances of it, it's an absolute web. Um, you know, he owns uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who just signed Tom Brady for a lot of money and paid a lot of money out to a lot of players. And they're doing the same there and at United. But it, it just is really, really difficult. And it's a lot of it's about the interest and stuff like that. And there's still a lot of death there. So, you know, we've seen this for a long time. We've seen it with Leeds as well. Um, big, big, massive clubs yeah, the institutions huge, that
3: are can, institutions that can fall foul of it. Huge clubs. Um, I'm going to wrap us up there, lads. We, uh, you know, we don't want to drone on too long. And I think we can probably pick this up on Enough of Me, Clive, at some point as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's. Um, yeah, it's 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 worrying times for for a lot of football clubs, as it is for a lot of people and their jobs and and businesses and stuff. And you know, it remains to me seeing how viable the the pyramid will be when it, when we go into this period. And um, lads, thanks very much for your time and for your thoughts. As always, very insightful, very interesting. Um, so before we get to, to Mark and Nicholas' quickfire, we DMs John Bruin, who's a, a, a journalist who is also a, a Macclesfield Town fan. He's, he was born in Macclesfield, and he gave us some thoughts on the stuff that's been going on at the club, how they've ended up where they've got to, and the, the the impact it's going to have on on the community, as well as some of the broader questions that we've just been discussing there. So we're going to leave you with his thoughts and then it'll be uh, passed on to, to Mark and Nicola. Thanks for for joining us today. You can find us on Twitter at Marking underscore man and use the hashtag where's the talking lads this is the final episode of series four we'll be back with series five in a couple of weeks time we've got lots of exciting things to come so as usual thanks for listening to us if you want to find us on your on your feeds whatever you're listening be that apple podcast google podcast spotify acast give us a, a like give us a subscribe give us a review it just helps us get in front of more listeners and as we have mentioned before we have a patreon you can find us on Patreon, uh, just search Man Marking Podcast. It's just two ninety nine a month, lots of extra content on there. We've got uh, an interview with mi- uh, midfielder Mike Jones, Baron midfielder Mike Jones, and Nottingham Forest winger Joe Lolly on there, early releases, and four predictions episodes on there as well, which this weekend has proved that some of us know what we're talking about, and, um, and others perhaps don't.
0: Yeah, probably me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
3: So we're going to leave it there. We're going to pass you over to Mark and Nicholas' quickfire, and uh, before that, John Bruin
2: a brief outline of what has happened at Macclesfield. To put it simply, um, Macclesfield uh, is a or was, unfortunately, I've to use the, the past tense at the moment. Uh, was a uh, a club always operating on a shoestring budget. It's in a. Small town beyond the Manchester conurbation, um, and it's a footballing town, but a small footballing town, uh, and a town in which the other footballing attractions, uh, not too far up the road, are Manchester City and Manchester United, and then obviously up in uh, Merseyside in the eighties, a lot of people used to go to Liverpool and Everton. Now. uh, so and you know actually stoke city itself uh, is 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 perhaps even closer than any of those so that there are big clubs around and uh, th- th- those hardy souls that have been attending macclesfield town all those years are used to supporting a small club and it's a club that had run itself well um though there have been wobbles over the years um back in the 90s um the uh, there was a big scandal when uh, the owner actually committed suicide he was a a jeweller in the town and uh, the club went very close to going bust at that point. But oddly enough that was uh the start of a revival uh and Macclesfield um stayed up in uh what used to be the conference league and eventually made the way up right up into the um into what, what these days would be called League One, but let's call it the third tier. Um and unfortunately that's as that's as far as they've been um and in recent years Um, The higher costs of running a football club have certainly uh, certainly hit Macclesfield Town. Um, If you think about it, the the players at the top are earning a lot more money and players, even in League 2, are earning an awful lot of money. Uh, And Macclesfield did drop out of the Football League after 15 years back in 2012 and skated around uh, the the conference, on on a shoestring, but actually the, the the big problems came to light about the time uh, that they gained promotion from the national league back in twenty eighteen, um, which yeah, as a Microsoft fan was it was one of the happiest times supporting them because the, the previous few years had been um, pretty desolate, um, but, but at that point the finances came to the fore. Now the the owner was uh, a gentleman called. Amar al Qadi. Now he and his brother got involved in the club around 2003. They have initially seen for the first few years as reasonably benevolent. They kept the thing going. Um, but in the last few years, uh, there's been a great deal of um, dissatisfaction among the fans. Um, and one of the problems for Amar, uh is that a few fans did boycott because they'd had quite enough of, of what was going on behind the scenes. Um, but the the problems ran deeper than that um, and they came to a head uh, last week when, uh, after a, a long time, a long time that pretty much began uh, after that promotion uh, was achieved, uh, which was that the manager, John Askey, who previously played almost a thousand games for the club uh, and had always been the manager the club had turned to in times of emergency, he'd led them up. And and did the unthinkable, really, which was to walk away from the club. Now, he he, he went to join uh, Shrewsbury Town. Um, Now, the talk was he's got to join them for more money, which, you know, it happens in football. And, you know, perhaps Sir John, as he's known, hadn't earned the money that he needed to from football. But unfortunately, as part of the uh, court case and the winding up proceedings it was exposed that he was owed um, over £170,000 by the club. Um, I think some of that may, might have involved a bonus. Um, after after uh, John Askey's departure via a, another manager, they got in Sol Campbell. Now, Sol Campbell brought great publicity to the club, but didn't really bring any money and uh, didn't earn any money either. Now, a while back, he was talking about um, how he was owed over £180,000. Um, and uh, you add that up and you add that to uh, the debts to Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs you've essentially got an insolvent company um, Mac have been uh, Mac and Amar essentially have been pushing uh, the date back as far as possible and during those proceedings um, he actually asked for an extra extension suggested he had £1.1 million in the bank and could pay off the debt of over £500,000 but Uh, The the judge, the receiver, uh, um, was not having it. And uh, that was the end of Macclesfield Town as we know it at the moment. How will that impact the the local community? Right, well, um, as I've said, Macclesfield is uh, a town... um, It's an interesting mix because uh, one of the things is that people tend to think of Macclesfield as an affluent place, which... You know, there there are poorer towns around it in in the north west of England, but uh, it's surrounded by very posh areas. Uh just down the road, uh from uh, from Macclesfield uh is a, vi- a village which is part of Macclesfield called Pressbury, which is Wayne where, where Wayne Rooney, Michael Carrick, uh Robbie Savage, various Coronation Street stars they live. Uh, it's a very bijou village, uh but this village is now full of those sort of footballer mansions that you'll see. Uh, on uh, various lifestyle programmes, um, uh, you know, uh, Cheshire Housewives and so on. Uh, And then Oddly Edge, a bit further on, um, is where Sir Alex Ferguson lives and, again, various pop stars, Richard and Judy off TV, that type of thing. But Macclesfield itself is a very working-class town um, and within that... uh, there is big support for the club, but it has to be said that there are a lot of people within the town who do go and watch United and City. They that that's always been a draw, and I would be one of them. Uh, but Macclesfield Town um, was at the heart of the town um, on those days when they had big success. Um, you know, the town would come out to watch them. I remember uh, they reached the FA Trophy final back in nineteen eighty nine. My first ever trip to Wembley. Uh, and uh, my nephew, actually, uh, back in 2017, it was his first ever visit to Wembley when they, they reached the final of, of the FA Trophy again. Um, it, it It's never going to be... Uh, it's it, Essentially, it's never going to be almost as big a club as any, somewhere like like Stockport or even Bury, you know, two clubs that have suffered so badly in recent years. Um, and so... It, it it relied upon the benevolence of the local population it also relied on the fact that if the economies of scale got too tough then the club would would be in big trouble and that and it needed an owner who operated in good faith and the evidence is that that really hasn't happened how's that affected the fans well i think there's still a certain sense of shock within the town um for those of us uh, you know in our 40s and older it's you know you look back on the good times and you remember um how much fun it was to go to maxfield town uh <laughs> the football was never was was often not great but uh, there was a humor to the place um and uh it, the, the bad football a lot of the time brought out a, a very sort of uh, well the word is maxonian sense of humor um it's a place where sarcasm rules really and um it was good fun and uh, as I said on the, the Guardian Football Weekly podcast last week um, I've like lived in Macclesfield for 20 years, um, longer than that actually but um, living in London I would try and catch them as often as possible and uh, just going to watch them play and meeting seeing people that you might know or not even know but it's a taste of your hometown and uh, I know that Macclesfield town was is very dear to the heart of 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 the of the town itself um and i don't think that say for example the local mp uh, who, who's a tory has done quite enough to to push the the club's cause uh, and if we move on to the third question uh, about uh, is there anything more that the efl or fa could have done to stop it from happening well at this point um we go on to i suppose the light touch that that we had from uh from the football authorities um the fit and proper person test uh well that that in itself is considered pretty arbitrary isn't it within within football circles but um people can stop being fit and proper once they own a club and that's certainly be the ev- the evidence of several clubs that have gone to the wall recently or have had big problems um That would certainly be the view of Amar El Khadi. Um, I'm not sure uh, how much interaction he had with the EFL or the FA. I know that those that have tried to deal with him have found him evasive. Friends of mine uh, in the journalistic trade that have spoken to him uh, have only ever managed to speak to him via WhatsApp. That he's been evasive. They haven't really done enough about it. They've punished the club time and again for failure to pay wages and the games and for the games where the players didn't show up it's been a rocky ride and um the end of the affair really was Macclesfield getting relegated from the football league now that came about because uh, Stevenage um who had gained fewer points per game um at, at when the season was stopped because of covid-19 uh were able to successfully challenge the ruling Uh, And they actually got in uh, a pretty high profile lawyer, the type that uh, Macclesfield Town certainly couldn't afford, and got their way out of it. And I believe that the EFL, in fact, changed, well, they appealed their own judgment uh, to get that overturned. So it felt at that point that the EFL had had their fill of Macclesfield and pretty much threw them to the dogs. There is blame on all sides, uh, though I I wouldn't um, blame the fans at all. I would blame uh, Amar, I would blame the EFL and blame the FA. And I would suggest that Macclesfield's story is one uh, which would tell you that football clubs really do need to be... uh, There needs to be tighter constraints on what goes on behind the scenes. There needs to be... um, when warning single signals throw up, I don't think that the authorities are doing enough about that. And you speak to fans of any clubs or you speak to executives within the clubs, they would certainly hold that view. Um, and then uh, finally, uh, there's this question about the change ownership models of football clubs. Well, yes, I mean, this is often mooted and I think every club in the world would like to run some sort of uh, Barcelona-style Socios thing or even the idea of, you know, by Munich, uh, who just happens to be owned by uh, people who are <laughs> multi-millionaire car companies and so on and so forth. I do think that clubs are, especially the size of Macclesfield, are for the fans. Um, uh, uh, but we've been used to local businessmen running clubs, certainly in, in the northwest. Uh, and certainly in english football for for well for for as long as it's existed really but that that model in itself um does seem uh, particularly in this economic climate so i've so many weaknesses not everybody can be uh say like the, the people that own burnley or um there are no jack walkers floating around macclesfield to to buy it out so in a way the football league really needs to to, to think about Um, fan ownership. How that happens, I don't know. Um, There there are other people more qualified than I to talk about it. Um, I mean, within that, though, there are examples of clubs who have gone down this road and then shifted direction and then uh, somewhere along the road sold out to, to people with money. I mean, Swansea, who used to be the model club for so long, they certainly did that. Um, and it's i think one of the things is that just because a club is owned by its supporters it doesn't necessarily mean that it's well run uh i think one of the issues within football is that the people that are doing the business are not necessarily necessarily good businessmen now that goes to, right to the top uh you know including the glazer family at manchester united uh, and, and and several custodians of, of of bigger clubs at the top um but um when it comes to a club like macclesfield uh it it would have made sense if if people from the town with a club's interests at heart, heart were able to come in um uh but I, I do think running football clubs just seems such a complicated thing um we've seen uh, even at, at clubs which are uh, essentially cooperative uh, say fc united the club that um was formed as a as, as rebellion after the Glazer takeover of Manchester United they certainly had a few problems within their management um, and uh, things have you know changed around there um, again I think it comes down to the people that run the club and uh, the, the tale of Macclesfield, the sad tale of Macclesfield, certainly very sad for me is that um, the people running it or the person running it was entirely the wrong person for the club and uh, it's the, the fans of macclesfield town uh, and the uh, people of macclesfield and macclesfield the town itself robbed of a cultural asset by cultural vandalism they're the people that suffer for that um so yeah in summary um it's a situation uh which i hope there might be some sort of light under the, at the end of the tunnel there's talk of buyers there's talk of uh um, which league that Ma- a reformed Phoenix club might might come into. Uh, but it, it, at the moment, it's very difficult to to step away from the wreckage of what used to be Macclesfield Town.
0: Uh, other than the two Wembley wins, what's been your favourite moment at Tramia? <laughs> the
4: comeback at Barrow.
0: Yeah, I couldn't. Do you have a favourite
6: Tramia song? Well,
4: so, Tequila.
3: Uh,
5: Mike and Teller told us that Nicola wears the trousers. Is that true? (laughs) Michael Seller, as you know, is an ex-con.
0: He was jailed for burglary. (laughs) 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 Uh, Okay, what actually is a fit and proper person's test?
5: (laughs) It's easier than passing your driving test. Wow. <laughs> a
4: lot easier.
5: A lot easier, yeah.
6: What's your proudest achievement the club has made that the fans probably wouldn't know about?
4: You
5: know, you, do you really know about the pitch and how ballsy that was to do it when we did it?
4: We, we had to make a call on the pitch when, when football was, was first stopped. Um, because there was such uncertainty about when we were going to get a close season, when things were going to start, and we knew we need, we had this massive remediation project, so uh, we decided to to go for it and rip the pitch up when the official line was we were going to be playing again in six weeks' time.
5: Well, we were got, we were <laughs> going to be returning for training on the third of April. On the nineteenth, the evening of the nineteenth of March, I made the decision to rip the pitch up with the guy. And he ripped it up on the 21st of March, right in the teeth of, of the lockdown. Um, and uh, you might remember as out on the Monday or the Tuesday that Boris was talking about. Well, you know, maybe it's a full lockdown, and people weren't sure what essential meant, so we'd had to have stockpiled all the supplies. And he, he, the guy had, and we had plans to make the people to live, st- in the live in the stadium uh, and self isolate when they were doing the work, and they compacted five weeks' work into two weeks' work. Wow. Yeah. And also, you know, if, you know but, if but also taking Deso the gamble ourselves. on the
4: money at the time of putting a Deso down, where no, no, there was such no, uncertainty.
5: No, we no. no, we 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 the money.
4: No, no, but I mean, around the football generally, it was it was a, a brave. No, decision. I,
5: I I'd, I'd done the uh, I'd done the figures. We would seal the money. That
4: was.
5: <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: how many times has James Norwood phoned up and asked to come home? Six or seven.
1: <laughs> he's
4: certainly been back plenty of times. If he, if he's not playing, he uh he'll often come and pop into the boardroom and come and see us, which is nice. He's a good lad, James, and I think he 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 made it very clear that at some point in the future he would like to be back at Tranmere. In some guys, whether as a player or a coach or just involved in some way, I think I think the club got to his heart in a way that he. Perhaps wouldn't have expected as an Eastbourne lad.
5: Yeah, when he when he first came, we, we kidnapped him, uh, and uh, <laughs> virtually, virtually, I don't know whether you know the story. I took him onto the centre of the pitch. It was a nice sunny day, and the pitch looked good. And and, and I said, knowing that he played at uh, Forest Green, really, and um, <laughs> nothing. I've got nothing against Forest Green, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he I got him in the centre of the pitch and and sort of said, oh, this can be yours, my man, you know, sort of thing. And uh, then we sort of took him out. We took him out to a restaurant Mm. and we then got his phone away from him in some way and uh, didn't let him speak to people and kept him (laughs) overnight. and, And then we signed him in the morning. And then he answered his messages with, with phones from League One clubs and things that were trying to sign him. Oh no! So that's how we started. But you know, as as a lad, I, you know, I like him a lot. He, he is he is what he is in terms of he's quite a character. But um, I'm I was, glad
4: I don't have to keep an eye on his Twitter account yeah. anymore.
5: And I I was like his, his, <laughs> his um, I was his northern dad. So. Um, we had, we had a good relationship. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to see James back at the club at some stage, but it, it is what it is. You know, the club moves on, he moves on. Um, and, and I've always been a great believer in this time of people sort of breaking contracts and moving on, that if the player comes, fulfils his contract and does what he's asked to do, you know, he goes with our blessing at the end of the day. We would have liked to have kept him, just as we'd like to have kept Cookie. But, you know, they came, they did what they were asked to do and ran their contracts out. It, people were talking about, well, we didn't get any money for him. We you know but- I mean, it hadn't occurred to me to resign him.
2: Can his side find a way in the final ten minutes here? He goes across cross towards in. Utter joy for Trabnia. Wide out in tears, the man who was sent off inside a minute. This is the to be salvation. These next five minutes will feel like 55 minutes. Football on an eye bench. Can tramir hold out? Promoted. Trammeer are going up. Mellon's mission accomplished. Back to the Football League they go. There was a way to win this topsy turvy National League. It's today's game. <laughs> Man